took a little turn last week. Um, not, not really. I mean, we were in the Sermon on the Mount, but we were supposed to do something different. We were supposed to do what we're going to try to do tonight, and that's finish those Jesus statements But uh, of the, you have heard it said, but I say. But we got to the marriage and divorce verse from, from uh, Matthew 5, 31, 32, and we, I, I just couldn't shake it. Felt like there were some things we needed to say. Um, I thought last week was a sort of the, one of those moments where things fall the way they're supposed to fall. Um, and that those who probably should be in the room were in the room and those who needed to hear that this week at a very timely moment in their life have heard that this week. And so it was, if you haven't listened to it, um, give it a spin from last Wednesday night or Tuesday night. Also, that leads us to tonight. What we will do tonight is finish the final three sayings in which Jesus um, speaks of what you have heard, but what he says. And that's not a conflict. I want to try to lay these three out um, with a couple of things up front to really put our minds in what I hope is the right space for what Jesus is trying to say. If you'll notice, every week I try to do this with the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm doing this intentionally. I don't do things to stall or to drag stuff out, get to the text. I love what I get to do. So I don't ever get up here and think, ooh, we got to lengthen this out a little bit. If anything, I'm always trying to think of what to cut. But every week I do try to slow my, kind of slowly walk into this teaching because I feel it's necessary to go back contextually just a little bit every week to get you back into the mindset of hearing the Sermon on the Mount through, if possible, Jewish ears from the first century. I know that's not entirely possible. We're not Jewish ears from the first century, but we're smart enough, we're student enough to be able to at least suspend, if with some effort, what we bring to the table so that we can try to pick up what they would have brought to the table. And when we do that, we get a little closer to the core of what Jesus is trying to do. That's why I think last week was so important because it, it took marriage from a Jewish mentality through a first century mentality. And what you notice, and I listened to it again this week, and I don't do that every week, but I did. And what I caught was that was something that probably needs said every week. And that is that in those moments where Jesus takes us into his culture, his context, the shocking thing is that how relevant it is to our culture and our context for totally different reasons. Like we're not even in the same spot as they are, but we end up needing the message in a whole different way. Than, than they would have. And, and I don't think these are any exception tonight. And these that we deal with tonight are a little difficult. So let me lay it out with, with this thought. I'm just showing you guys what I see. When we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not trying to be, we're not trying in any way to give the end-all interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to go find a hundred guys that, and, uh, that will teach this 70 ways, 80 ways, maybe a hundred different ways. I land on different things. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm not trying to get you where I am or get us in the same spot. Um, I know that you deeply love God. I know that you highly regard the scripture. It's why you're here. It's why you come back on Tuesday night because you love God, you like each other, <laughs> and you highly regard the scripture. And highly regarding the scripture is that really that glue because we're excited to hear the word. We're kind of excited to see what God has to say to us in this moment. Um, there's a little danger in that because don't conflate 
my interpretation of Scripture with inerrancy. And, and, and I know you don't, but let's always keep that in mind. It's what I see the Scripture to say. It does not make it the inerrant Word of God. Okay? What happens in groups, it happens in churches, it happens in ministries, so we go to trust what comes from the pulpit to the point that their interpretation starts to be conflated with inerrancy. So what they say becomes the only way to say it, the only way to see it, the only way to preach it, the only way to teach it. Anyone that's outside of that way, something's wrong with them. They're a weirdo. They're not anointed. And then we'll start to drag the Holy Spirit into it. They're not anointed like like we understand what, if you're saying the anointing in that kind of context, I don't think you know what the anointing is. Right. When people say to me, they're not anointed. Go, oh, they disagree with your pastor? Okay, I don't think you know what the anointing means. It doesn't have anything to do with agreement on what the scripture's trying to say to us. So we all love the, the, the Lord. We love one another. We love hearing the word. It doesn't mean we're landing on an inerrant place with scripture. It means that we're on a journey and we walk out of here and we keep wrestling and we might not all end up in the same spot and that's okay. When we fail to do that properly, we do it to our own peril. And so what ends up happening is, is that we can start to go down the trail of only being able to see scripture through a certain lens. And we might do that through our denominational lens. We might do that through our pastoral lens. We might do that through our parents' lens, through our cultural historical lens. There's, there's a lot of them. Put different lenses into those frames constantly on how I see that text. And what is happening is that we're atrophying our spiritual discernment muscles. And so we're hearing the text and then we're just going, what's so-and-so think about it? And then we just wait to see what so-and-so thinks about it. And then when so-and-so says it, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, that's, that's what that means. And we don't, even, we don't even run that past our spirit test and say, hmm, I don't know. That doesn't really line up with what I see here or what I see there. And that's on us. There's no other way to say that. That's on, and it's on all of us. And all of us have the opportunity to do that. And all of us have the opportunity to screw that up. And that's not a condemning statement. It's an awareness statement. It's to go follow the peace of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Wrestle with big things with a big, big wrestle. Take big things serious and treat them that way. And you don't have to land on answers. It's not about coming to church, finding the answer and then going home and you have it. Now you can move on to the next topic. And we've done that for too long. We, why are we moving on as if we, it's, it's a test we have to pass? Conquer the material, move on to the next thing. Conquer the material, move on to the next thing instead of just continuously going back and wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. So what, do, what I think, what I think here is that Jesus is not teaching us how to interpret scripture. He's not saying when you read the Bible, you can read the Bible, but, there, but I say to you. So interpret the scripture through this lens. I think he's telling us how to treat people and to follow him. So when you watch the sermon, watch him move in the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling you this is what I would do. To, this is how I would treat people. And we go and we do it. And let's be honest, we go and we don't. Let me say that again. <laughs> we go and we do what Jesus said to do. And then sometimes we go and we don't do what Jesus said to do. And what we need to wrestle with is the moments where we go and don't do what Jesus said to do because we just don't want to. Versus the moments we go and do don't do what Jesus said to do because we don't have the ability yet. Those are two different animals and they're worth thinking about and they're worth wrestling over 
And whether you go and do what Jesus did, or you don't go and do what Jesus did, or you accidentally don't do what Jesus did, or you blatantly don't do what Jesus did, your righteousness is not in the doing and the don'ts. Your righteousness is in Christ. You are his child. You are redeemed and forgiven. You are bought with a price. He doesn't divorce you. That was last week's message. For all that we said, where we really need to land is, he doesn't get rid of you even though you might cheat. He sticks it out. Now, we may not be able to do that. We're not him, but we aspire to him. And when we fail to be him, we don't fail. We do not cease to be one of his. Okay? That gets us back into that flow, that sort of mental flow, spiritual flow of where Jesus is. Because we just stopped right in the middle of a sermon. And to jump right back into the middle of that is to push pause on a message you're watching and then one week later hit play. You might need to rewind just a touch to kind of figure out where you are. So that's where we are when we arrive here in what we're going to title, But I Say to You, which is technically what Jesus says about six times over the course of Matthew 5. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and we're going to find some of them are blatant scriptures. Some of them are just statements people made up. And we got one little chestnut tonight that's both scripture and stuff people made up. And he crammed it into one little moment, and Jesus has to combat that as well because we're pretty prone to do that with scripture. Let's read from Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read the entire passage. And what I mean by that is not the entire chapter yet, but through 37, that's this, you have heard it said. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, to the ancients, old time, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. 34. But I say to you, there it is. There's our subtitle because this is the flip. This is the rebuttal. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 36. And I know we're moving because you know how we do. So we're going to read it. We're going to work on it. Nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Whatever is more than, this, than these is from the evil one. That's a big place to land right there. Whatever is more than yes being yes and no being no, he says, is actually from the evil one. This is a statement Jesus doesn't make all the time. Jesus does not attribute just any old thing to the devil like we do. I mean, we'll, we'll throw everything off on the devil. Car didn't start this morning. Devil's out to get me. <laughs> Ran out of gas. Demons are chasing me down. I mean, everything's on the devil. It's not, it's not on me not stopping to getting gas. It's on the devil who somehow siphoned it all out overnight. Jesus isn't that way. You notice Jesus doesn't turn around and blame everything on the devil. And sometimes when he does, it's in the weirdest moments, like when he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, which is something we wouldn't have the nerve to say to anyone. And yet he puts Satan right there in the middle of that conversation. So um, I let Jesus take care of when to address it as devil and when not. So it's pretty big to land on anything more than yes is yes and no is no is of the evil one. And so we need to ask ourselves why. To do that, we want to find out what Jesus is dealing with. And what I mean by that is, of course, he's using scripture. He doesn't have the Bible the way we have the Bible. But he has heard the Torah, he has heard the law, he hears it repeated in their songbook, he hears it repeated in their synagogue readings every Saturday, and he has done so for his entire life. They're in a culture, an, audio, uh, an auditory culture, in which they memorize scripture by hearing it, uh, not by reading it. And so this is why some of the quotes, this is a little bit of an aside, but probably a necessary one. 
some of your quotes in the New Testament don't line up very well with your Old Testament text. you got New Testament writers quoting Scripture, and you'll go, where's that at? You'll go find it, and it'll look kind of like it. There's two reasons for that. One is your Old Testament, your Old Testament is translated out of Hebrew. Their Old Testament was translated out of Greek. Two entirely different languages, of course, which lead to two entirely different English interpretations. But also because most of them had never read the Scriptures, but they had heard the Scriptures. And how many of you realize when you hear something enough, it doesn't sound exactly like it read the first time? Because like the good old-fashioned game of telephone, you begin to spread that until it changes and changes and changes. And a little bit, Jesus is dealing with some of that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said. And he's going to throw some things out there and you go, whoever said that? Well, you've heard it said, and maybe it was sourced in an Old Testament text. So we go back to the closest we can get. Because sometimes when Jesus says, you've heard it said, there's just literally not one in which the Old Testament says that. But we've got close, so what we can do is make an assumption. I know it's impossible to preach from silence, from a place of silence, but we're going to try. We have to make assumptions, and that assumption is that they would have had the same text we do, and that they might have done something with it, which is what we do. We take the text, we do something with it. And they probably had done that with something like Leviticus 19, verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Jesus told them in Matthew 5, 33, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. Well, maybe this is where Jesus is pulling from. Leviticus 19, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. Perhaps this as well. Deuteronomy 23, 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. Look at that. If you vow, then you need to pay the vow. But you don't have to vow. Vows are not, it's not as if you have to make a promise. If you do take it serious. 23. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform for you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so what do we know based on Leviticus and Deuteronomy? You put those two together. Don't swear using God's name falsely. So if you're going to swear on something and say, I commit by God, I'm going to do that. He said, don't lie. This is what Torah says. So do what it is that you say you are going to do. But I say to you, don't swear at all, Jesus said in Matthew 5. I say to you, don't do what it sounds like you are able to do according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And that causes us this kind of friction because you've got the Torah going, yeah, you can do this. And then Jesus come along and going, no, don't. And so then we have to dig into what Jesus is trying to say to his audience. This is a thought. This is why we went back and talked a little bit about marriage. It's not coincidental that Jesus places this passage immediately after his comments on the sacredness of marriage. He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. 517, Sermon on the Mount. We've went over that before. In light of the fact that he's not destroying it, then he can't be instructing us not to make oaths because the Old Testament told you you can make an oath. So Jesus isn't going to turn around and go, nah, forget that. You said you can make an oath, but I'd say you can't make an oath. No, he's showing that honesty and integrity 
and faithfulness. How do I know it's these? Because it's right after the marriage passage in which he, on, he elevated the sacredness of marriage. He said, oh, by the way, now that you're treating marriage the way God would treat marriage, then treat honesty the way God would treat honesty. Because that's what marriage is made up of. Where there isn't any honesty, there's not going to be a lot of faithfulness in marriage. There's not going to be a lot of hope in marriage or sacredness in marriage. So by showing us that honesty, integrity, and faithfulness are to come from the heart, not from external laws, not because you made an oath, not because you signed a contract, not because you're required to. The kingdom consists of the transformed, not the obligated. I'm going to get to that last sentence in a moment, but let's think about this within context of the marriage passage. You marry someone, Jesus says, rule change. Moses lets you divorce for whatever. Adultery was a stonable offense. Elevate that. Jesus goes, only adultery is a divorceable offense. Forget stonable offense. There's a biggie. Get rid of the stonable offense. Adultery is the divorceable offense. By the way, if you divorced her for any other reason, you'd make other people think she committed adultery because that was the only reason you could have gotten rid of her anyhow. He's going to elevate marriage back to that level where it's that important. He goes, you have heard it said. I'll just put this right in behind the marriage passage. You have heard it said, don't swear falsely. Perform your oaths to the Lord. I say to you, don't swear at all. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't swear by your own power and ability. The hair's on your head. Don't swear. Um, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Whatever comes out of your mouth, let it be that way. Why? Because if it takes an oath or a contract or a covenant or a requirement or a rule or a list to get you to do the right thing, you didn't do the right thing because you're right. You did the right thing so you wouldn't get caught being wrong. And so Jesus goes, making an oath is not a bad thing. But if you've got to tie yourself to an external in order to be honest, you're not honest. You're just afraid of getting caught. Now that's obvious. But to hear Jesus say it on the backside of the marriage passage is like saying this. If you're faithful to your spouse because you don't want to break the seventh commandment, See how successful and romantic your marriage is when you come home and tell your spouse why you were faithful today. I mean, put that, take that one out for a spin. Hey, didn't break the seventh commandment today. First of all, it's an odd opening. But if you're doing the law to feel good about yourself and it's all you've got, and they go, I would really rather you just be faithful to me because you love me because you're committed to me, not because you're scared you'll burn in hell if you're not. And yet, let's be honest, there's been a lot of our activity in front of the Father that wasn't birthed out of covenantal commitment, but birthed out of fear that if we didn't keep our end of the deal, we were in trouble. And you go, well, hey, if that's the only way to keep a marriage together, that's better than nothing. Tell that to the other end of the marriage. That's what I would say. Tell that to the person who is only being treated in that manner because the other end of the covenant looks at it like a contractual obligation. This is my issue with vow-based marriages. I make this vow and this vow and this vow and this vow. Because this is what I went back and listened to last week. This was the one line. I said it in passing. And when I said it, I went, 
I, I said, say it again, Paul. And then Paul didn't say it again. So really disappointing. So I'm going to say it again. And that is this. When we approach things through vow-based performances or vow-based marriage contracts, we have a back door to let ourselves out when people break the vow because that was why we were faithful. And if you break the vow, I can consider that violent and I have a back door to get out. And that's how Israel had been treating marriage. So Jesus doesn't stop at bringing marriage up a level. He brings honesty up a level. Because if you're going to bring marriage up a level, you better bring honesty up. You better bring integrity up. Because we don't want to be the kind of people who do what we do because we're scared not to. We want to be the kind of people who do what we do because the kingdom is made up. What's that last sentence? The kingdom consists of the transformed, not the obligated. So God's kingdom is not made up of a bunch of people who walk around with the rules. Go, I'm going to do that and got to do that and got to do that. I got to check that off and make sure I did right. You know, if I do all the things and God will bless me. But you can, you can throw a rock in most churches and find a few of those. And why wouldn't you find them? It's what they were taught to do. It's how they were taught to follow the Lord. Get your rules and your regulations out and do your best. Oh, did you screw a few of them up last week? Get up here. Get it right with God. And we dedicate large chunks of the service to sin management. In which we manage failure. And we manage inefficiencies. And we manage problems. We manage checkmark boxes being left unchecked. You didn't get to check that off. You didn't do the... Or we manage, could I check this off better in bold ink instead of the miserly way I checked it? Because that's what we start to do too, is sort of gauge our obedience through different metrics. And Jesus is saying, stop it. Stop swearing by heaven. Stop swearing by earth. Stop swearing by your own ability. Let your yes be let yes. Let your no be no. If you say yes, say yes because you're a yes Man, if you say no, say no because you're a no man. Not because you were obligated, not because you're under contract, not because somebody's looking over your head, shoulder, not because you're afraid you're going to bust hell wide open if you mess this up. Let's be honest. This is why we said last week, the, the, the thing that you bring to marriage is honesty. If you don't bring it, you're in trouble. Well, it, we could really say it this way. If you bring anything other than an integrity birth of love, it's a lack of honesty that's poison in that thing. And, and that's not just marriage, and that's, that's all of our walk. It's, where we, it's how we walk this thing out. So show honesty and integrity as a place from the heart. Um, do, we have to, do we have to police people saying, I swear, I swear I'll do this for you? I don't know. I, I don't think I'm anybody's sheriff. I'm, I'm, I'm like the word sheriff on how they phrase things and... Ooh, you, got, you can't say that. I don't think that's Jesus' point. The whole point in this has always been heart issues. It's to be the kind of person that, who doesn't have to have the outside oath. Like, let's be people of honesty and integrity to the place that we never have to say, hey, I'll do that. I swear I'll do that. Well, what would happen if you hadn't swore? Is there a chance you wouldn't have done it? Yeah, I know. I mean, Exactly. But I'll really do it now. I swear on my mama's grave. Like, what, what did that up the ante? And you go, well, that, that's an oddly superstitious world. But we're not that far removed from that sort of thinking. It's like, this guy was really serious. I mean, he wasn't just casual about it. And Jesus is, is showing us that the Father has never been casual about being honest with you. He's never been casual about the covenant he makes with you. He's, I used to... 
imagine, even when I started preaching grace and finished work, really concentrating on grace and the finished work and how I saw the scripture, there were some early sermons in there where I would present God as obligated by covenant, that God would look at us and our failures after we've accepted Christ and, and that he would go, oh boy, I was a, Tim had a bad week, but you know, I'm going to see Jesus instead of Tim. That's how I'd preach it. That when he looks down, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. I'm not mocking that. If that helps you to start framing covenant properly, start there. Because it did help me. It helped me in an early day to see Jesus standing in between. But what I found quickly was it made God and me at odds. Jesus was the buffer. God wasn't really happy with me. It was that Jesus made him happy with me. And that God had to ignore and overlook me and obligate himself to his checklist covenant he made at Calvary. And the checklist covenant he made at Calvary was, if you put your faith in Christ, I'll be faithful to you. And then he'd look over and go, okay, well, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm not happy with him, but he did the little prereq. He did the prerequisite. And so I'm going to cover him one more week. I don't buy that. Because God isn't swearing himself to me based on an external oath. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, God is not a man that he should make an oath or that he should swear. But he made one with Abraham anyway. For Abraham's sake, not for God's. God didn't cut a covenant with Abraham because God kept forgetting. You know, like, oh, I don't know if I can bless him anymore. He cut it so that Abraham would remember that that's the kind of God that he serves. And that's what we have. Okay, I want to give you one more from the Old Testament before we get off of this one and move into the next one. And that's just because there's a passage in Chronicles that I want to show you that I think could be, and this is why I preface tonight with, I'm giving you what I see in this text. But I'm going to give you another one from Chronicles I think could be infiltrating their interpretation of oath-bearing. Okay, here's 2 Chronicles 6, 22. Old Testament, remember, if anyone sins against his neighbor, this is not Torah, by the way. Okay, this is not your first five books. So this isn't your basis of legalism, but it is prophetic. It is the words of the law. So they would have had it. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. This is such a decidedly old covenant sounding verse the retribution that comes on the wicked goes on his own head. You justify the righteous by giving to him according to his righteousness. We know that under the new covenant, Christ is our righteousness. So we are given to him according to his righteousness, not our righteousness. But that doesn't take away the, uh, the fact that that text says, if you sin against your neighbor and you're forced to take an oath, and then you brought that oath before God, this is you paying a portion of that oath to God, then you trust God's going to get your back. That could have been in their mind when Jesus comes along and goes, let's stop this practice. This isn't a practice. We continue under the kingdom. So we don't, this isn't how we treat our neighbor. We're not looking for God to bring retribution on our enemies. And in case you don't get that, when you get into the next two, you have heard it said, especially the last one, you're going to find that Jesus sums it all up by going, it don't work that way. God's not out to see who he can get. You know, he's going to go attack some people. That leads us back into the end of our first story. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. 
Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So it's actually the works of darkness to link you to morality based on something external. It's the work of the enemy to get you thinking in terms of doing right because you're morally obligated, because you're tied to a contract, because your covenant demands it, which tells me that the way the kingdom would like to see it happen, the way it happens in Christ is not for external obligations, but from an internal honesty. So when I say to you, yes, my yes is yes, my no is no. Anything else must be the use of darkness. Darkness is trying to attach me to something external. That segues into the next one. You have heard that it was said, verse 38. Here's a famous one. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I didn't even turn you to this. I didn't take you here in Exodus, but it's Exodus 21. It's a famous passage in which God starts to lay out what happens if bad things happen to you and your kids and your cattle in Exodus 21. Strangely, this tells you how important this was in an agriculturally based world. This is the first thing God talks about following the Ten Commandments. Because man, are we a people of retribution and reciprocity? And God knows it. So the minute you start laying law out, we're going to start figuring out what we do to people that break it. It's kind of funny when you go read the Torah and God goes, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Here's what's going to happen. If bad things happen to you, here's what you get to do in return. Because that's, it's like, we, we're like sharks. We smell blood in the water. The minute you get a thou shalt not, we got a big list and we got to go find out who's doing the knots and not doing the do's. And we're running the list through our heads and we got to go get them. And so Exodus 21, here's what happens. And God goes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let retribution be equal. Then we start to list off what happens if you hurt your neighbor's cow and what happens if uh, your neighbor's horse kicks a pregnant woman and she loses the baby. I mean, Exodus 21 really starts to break down these moments. It's also, by the way, where we get the 30 pieces of silver motif, which pops up in Exodus 21, because in Exodus 21, God says, if your cattle kicks your neighbor's kid and kills them or wounds them, then you can charge whatever you want and they got to pay it. If your cattle kicks your neighbor's servant, then you got to give them 30 pieces of silver because that servant is wounded and useless. And when you get to the prophecy of Israel selling the Messiah in Zechariah, they sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a wounded slave. They don't even consider him a part of their family. That's why the Calvary passage is so important of 30 pieces of silver. It's birthed here, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This is a reciprocity verse. This was pathbreaking in the Old Testament because the Old Testament world was somebody pokes you, you can cut their head off. That's the way the world works. Strong survive. Right? You're, going through a, you're going through a land full of strangers and you mess with us, we're going to kill you. Because here's how you make sure nobody comes back and robs your house twice. They rob it the first time, you go trace them down, and you cut everyone's head off. We love that kind of stuff in American cinema. Those movies fire us up. I have a certain set of skills. <laughs> See what you did there? See how you felt that? It's like, you're going to go home and watch some Liam Neeson. Dude's got a certain set of skills that make people like me very dangerous to you. And so I'm going to hunt you down. And we're not going to be kid for kid. I'm going to kill everyone you've ever met in your life. I'm going to kill everyone you've ever come in contact with because that's the way the world works. That's how we control violence. 
And then God gave the law and said, no, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They weren't real happy about eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth was really reining in the violence. It's like, I got to figure out what he did to me. That's all I can do back. So you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Oh, please don't give me a but I say to you, because if you've already dwindled reciprocity down to equal reciprocity, what's it going to be when the kingdom gets a hold of it? You ready for it? But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So big fat time out because you know what just happened. Old world system of the world. They hit you, you kill their whole family. That keeps them from hitting you twice. Torah, they hit you, you get to hit them back. Still get to hit them though. Yeah, I mean, so be careful. And then Jesus comes along and says, but I say to you, the kingdom has a whole different way of doing things. Man strikes you on the cheek, you turn to him your right one also. We're so into reciprocity and getting people back that we have had big, fat theological wranglings over why Jesus says turn to him your right cheek, why he doesn't just say turn your cheek, because probably he meant some sort of military insult, like if you slap someone on the right cheek, um, then that was the con- that was I heard this. If you slap someone in the old world on the right cheek, that was a challenge for a duel. And so don't be sucked in to somebody else's duel. And that's how we justified that. For everything else, we kind of go back to eye for eye, tooth for tooth, man. So you, you get what you got to do. You do what you got to do. But it doesn't fit the context for Jesus to just say, don't get sucked into a military duel. Oh, by the way, we're talking about marriage. And we're talking about making oaths to God. Oh, and by the way, don't get sucked into military duels, which is really going to matter until, like, say, early 19th century. And then after that, there's not going to be any more duels because, you know, we're going to advance beyond that. So this text is only going to matter for a little while. But the truth, I think, is somewhere far closer to you don't live in a world where you automatically respond the way you did before you met Jesus. You gave up your citizen. Let's slow down and say this this way. Ready? You gave up your citizenship of Cain's civilization. Cain's civilization is, if you don't get along with Abel, kill him. Oh, you're gonna, it's going to come back on you. There's the seven times, and then your, your grandkid's going to be 70 times, 77 times, and it's a snowball rolling down a hill. That's the way the system of the world works. But when you accepted Christ, you picked up a new citizenship. You laid your old citizenship down, and you picked up a new citizenship. And in that citizenship, we have two different reaction responses. I'd like to say it this way. Let's read that. Let me read out with that. And then we'll give you this thought. Whoever compels you to go a mile, we'll talk about this in a minute. Go with him too. Give to him who asks you, him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn him away. Think about this. Our human instinct is to react. Our kingdom instinct is to respond. What's the difference? Response is measured, controlled, redeemed. Never forget I'm bought. I don't own me. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. I have a king. I don't answer to him because I'm scared I won't check the boxes off. I've quit making oaths like that. My yes is yes and my no is no. What I do, I do from my heart, not from an obligation of an outside set of instructions. Which means I've picked up a different citizenship. However, when I was just a human reacting in the system of the world, reaction is me at the mercy of my emotions, me at the mercy of my experience. So whatever emotions my culture and my past and my history taught me, that's what you should expect. If you're going to step on the snake, you're going to get the fangs. 
because you crossed me and you shouldn't have. I'm not the kind of guy you cross, right? That's just my natural reaction. Jesus gives us a response. Responses are not subservient to reactions. We get to respond as children of the kingdom, not react as citizens of the earth. Those two things will go to the mat. You bet they'll, they'll keep going to the mat. My reaction versus my response. How do I know this? Well, because I fried tooth for tooth reaction, and it took some taming to get it down to that. It took centuries of legal taming to get us down to eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's why we say the punishment fits the crime, right? Where we come up with that phrase? That's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It took centuries of jurisprudence to get us to the punishment fits the crime. There are still cultures where the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You steal, they cut your hand off. Like, there's millions of people that live under that regime right now. Their jurisprudence has not gotten them to, I don't know, maybe we could do better than actually cutting off body parts. If someone, but we had to work our way to that because we had to control reaction. We had to tame it and teach it. Response. That's birthed in knowing him. That's birthed in spending time with him until my response mechanism is more important than my reaction emotion, than that which just snaps back. None of us have nailed this. <laughs> this is, if, if we ever find a spot in the Sermon on the Mount where we're pretty sure that nailing it is not baseline, this is the verse. This must not be baseline for citizens of the kingdom because this doesn't come easy. It's not as if we go, I got saved, so automatically all my emotional response, my reactions just went out the window. We know better than that. And yet we still know that it's the response ability, the responsibility, our ability to respond that is ours because we are citizens of the kingdom. Here was another one that Jesus put in that passage. Turn the other cheek. We had turn the other cheek and carry it the load two miles. Here's some thoughts. And I know we got to move. Turn the other cheek is not a reaction. Turn the other cheek is a response. Nobody reacts by turning the other cheek. Human reaction is not turn the other cheek. Kingdom response is turn the other cheek. It's a response, please catch this, rooted in love, not rooted in obedience. Rooted in love. And that's why it has to become a response that comes from a place of love. That's where Jesus is taking us with the Sermon on the Mount. You do not need to know Jesus to be a pacifist. This is why I am not a pacifist. Because I want my walk to be a reflection of the revelation I've had of Jesus. And you can become a pacifist and be an atheist. So why would I land in the same spot I could have landed without Jesus? So it's not as if you go, oh, you, if you follow this guy's teaching on kingdom, you got to be a pacifist. It's not about landing at passivity. That wasn't what Jesus says. He's trying to teach us that kingdom people live out of the response of love rather than the reaction of emotion. Because the reaction of emotion is you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. And you're lucky I don't knock your whole head off. I'm trying to be a good Christian. <laughs> when really all we're doing is trying to be a good Jew. Because it was Judaism that said, you only eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You go, really just trying to be a good, we always, we throw in good Christian all the time on stuff when we really aren't trying at all. You notice that? 
Yeah, yeah, I do more, but I'm trying to be a good Christian. <laughs> you don't need to know Jesus to be a pacifist. It could be seen as, listen, it could be seen as a challenge to the oppressor, daring the oppressor to look you in the eye. If you're going to hit me, you're going to have to look me in the eye and hit me. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And this is, a, this is elevating response over reaction. Remember, Jesus loves the guy that hits as much as he defends the guy that gets hit. Don't ever forget this. The Sermon on the Mount is not us versus them. This is God's response to a world that puts him on a cross. What's, what's the first of seven statements at Calvary? This is important because this becomes the basis by which you live your life. The first of seven statements. At, Jesus has seven things on the cross. The first one, Father. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Why do you got to start there? Because whatever you say next doesn't matter if you don't start there. Everything else is just theology. I mean, a heart of a guy that is getting killed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, I'm thankful that my, my entrance into eternal life doesn't hinge on my ability to say that from the heart. My entrance into eternal life is based on Jesus' ability to say that from the heart. I want to live that out because I have his life. So maybe it's a challenge. There's another one too where Jesus says, if a man tells you to go with him a mile, go with him too. It's also a liberating response. By the way, there was a law on the books in Rome in the first century that if a Roman troop recruited you to work for that Roman troop, you had to work for that Roman troop for one mile because transport was a difficult thing in the old world. And so they would take people off the street to transport goods. You had to go a mile under Roman law. So when Jesus says, if they compel you to go one, go two, he was speaking directly to something they already knew. So if we're compelled by those which we hate, because the only people that could make you do that was Romans, occupiers. So this wasn't lost on his audience. So the people I hate compel me to do something. Jesus says, what if you went two instead of just going one? So go with him too is also a liberating response. Again, rooted in love. It's not an invitation to be taken advantage of by everyone around us. We know this because he doesn't just pick some random statement. He picks an actual command the Roman army was giving to people. So it's not some blanket statement of passivity. It's not an invitation to be taken advantage of. It's a call to respond in a way that awakens the desire in all of us to be loved. What I mean by that is what if just as turning the other cheek forces your oppressor to look you in the eye if he's going to hit you again? What if carrying it too speaks to the very need to be loved by the oppressors around us? Because I think everything Jesus is doing is saturated in the love of the Father. What if our response is to go farther than we're requested to go? And it's seen by our enemies as the response they've never seen from anyone at all. This is the kingdom. This is the core of that sermon. Matthew 5, 43 you have heard that it was said, <laughs> you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh boy, here we go. Now, by the way, this is it. This is the last one. He saves a, quite a biggie for last. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's something interesting. In most of your hard copies, your Bible will, it will italicize words that were either not in the original text or a special italicis for words that are quotes from the Old Testament. Okay. In your hard copy, most of your Bibles say it this way. You have heard that it was said, italics, you shall love your neighbor, end italics, 
and hate your enemy. Because what translators have tried to do is determine that the last part was added by men, not in the Torah. That the Torah says, love your neighbor, but man had added, hate your enemy. I'm not going to tell you if that's the case. I'm going to show you a couple passages from the Old Testament. I'll let you determine for yourself. All right. Here's what Jesus might have been pulling from. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Jehovah. I am the covenant God. Pretty straightforward. But notice who it is that you love. Don't bear any grudge against the children of your people. You want to talk about highlighting and circling that one in their pocket Torah? That's one of the reasons. They didn't have a pocket Torah. I know they didn't have pocket Torah. (laughs) Children of your people, I'll get an email. This dork thinks there's pocket Torah. (laughs) But that's the reason the guy comes to Jesus and goes, who's my neighbor? Because he really don't want to love just anybody, right? I mean, you got to have some limits. I mean, you can't just throw everybody in there because there's some snots in the world. And you don't want to have to love them the way you love the children of your own people. That doesn't work. Okay, so love your, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. What about this? Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 6. Watch this. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they didn't meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. That's a lot of info. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Hmm. Good news. And there's this little verse tacked on there at the end. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all their days forever. Now, if you put those two together, where you're loving your neighbor, those are the children of your people, and then you add to it Deuteronomy where God says, don't ever pray for the prosperity of the people that treated you bad, then you might end up with, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because you might have been taught, it's okay, you got to love the people of God, but you don't have to love everybody. In fact, don't you ever pray for people that treat you wrong, because the people that treat you wrong don't deserve goodness. They don't deserve favor. That's why they're not the people of God. Does that sound at all like some stuff we've heard in church? Folks, I've heard it about supposed Christians. Not just unbelievers. We go, that guy doesn't deserve... Some of you are outside of God's favor. Anybody heard that preached? I've preached it. Some of you have sinned your way outside of God's favor. Some of you have... You you had been reading and gotten in God's favor. Not seeking the Lord and getting in God. We're just playing that game right there. If there's a problem, you caused it. I'm not going to pray for your blessing. You got unrepented of sin in your life. I'm not going to pray for you. Don't you dare come up here in this prayer line and ask for healing if you've got unrepented of sin. Or here's one I heard quite frequently. Hey, we're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. <laughs> Don't you come up here and take the body and the blood. You've got unrepented sin in your life. If you've got unrepented sin in your life, you don't qualify. Where'd we get that stuff? We're being, we're being good Old Testament Christians. Jesus said, but I say to you. But I say to you what? Love your enemies. Oh boy, here we go. Ready? Because you know it's going to be good. Jesus gets a hold of it. Kingdom flips it around. Things aren't going to look the way they looked before. Love your enemies. Bless the people that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. None of that is in the Torah. 
I mean, you could have walked away from Deuteronomy 23 and went, you don't ever have to pray for Moabites again. You don't ever have to pray for Ammonites again. Those are wicked people. Don't bother with them. They're wicked. They're outside of God's favor. We don't pray with them. They don't even get to go to church for 10 generations. I say to you, love your enemies, bless them and curse you, do good to those that hate you, pray for those that spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You want to look like the children of God you brag that you are? This is why the Sermon on the Mount gets heavy. It's not that Jesus is trying to take you into being sons. It's trying to show you what it would look like to be one. So he goes, you want to be with your father's kids? He makes, look at this. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You're out here choosing who you get to treat well, and dad's out here raining on everybody's crops. Now, who are you that you get to pick who gets blessed, who gets loved, who gets favored? Who gets anointed? Because you've read some verses. Because you've been alone in your prayer closet. you got stuff figured out. He goes, I'm quoting you a book that's been around for centuries, and yet, but I say to you, they miss the heart of the writer. They miss the heart of the writer, which is God's heart. And he goes, if you don't believe it, figure out who it rains on. Does it stop raining when it gets to the bad guy's house? Or does his crops get rained on as well? And the answer is, of course his crops are rained on. Why? Because the Lord sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. The sun even rises on the evil and on the good. They get the new day the same as you get the new day. God doesn't refrain them from the new day. For if you love people that love you, then what reward is that? Don't tax collectors do that? If you greet your brethren... What are you doing more than anybody else? Don't tax collectors do that? By the way, tax collecting was as bad as it got in Matthew 5. In the world of that day, a tax collector held the same social position as a pedophile in today's world. I, I, I don't mean that to be offensive or harmful to whatever tax collectors are hanging out in the, the halls of the IRS or watching this, but that's just... Con Culture to culture, context to context, all right? And considering audits, just, it's a different day. It's a different time. We're not even talking about you, tax collectors. Or you could do what I heard done a lot. You don't like it, take it up with Jesus. Used to hear that. So much snottiness would come out of the pulpit, and then the guy would go, You don't like it? Take it up with the Holy Ghost. I go, That's not the Holy Ghost being a jerk. That's you. <laughs> that was easy. Figured that out as a little kid. Don't even tax collectors do this. 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is not a jump to perfection. This is the definition of what it looks like. Well, what's perfect? The Greek word teleos, complete. Full age comes from the root word that helps make up to telestai. Ended, finished. If you love the unlovable, then you're complete like God because he doesn't only love his own. You guys you want to know what it looks like to be complete like God? Love the ones that aren't easy to love. Go, well, I really struggle with that. That's okay. Really struggling with that. That's hey man, welcome to the kingdom of God. Where you, you get your name changed the day you start wrestling with heaven. You want to go from Jacob to Israel? You better get on the map with God and wrestle it out because that's what Israel means. He who wrestles with God. When Paul called you the new Israel in Galatians 6, guess how you become the new Israel? Get on the mat, man. Wrestle this out. Bring who you are into it. Lay him right out there in front of the Father. God's not shocked. He ain't scared. 
He can handle what you bring. And he goes, you want to know what it looks like to look like dad? Go love the unlovable. Turn the other cheek. They ask you to carry it one, carry it two. They won't expect it. When you turn the other cheek, you make them look in the eye. When you carry it two, you make them wonder if anybody can love that much. When you don't react, but you respond, you show them an alien, strangers, citizens of another kingdom. Because you won't look like anything they've ever seen. Might not work. I close tonight with the most downing, discouraging possible thing you will ever hear in regards to a sermon that ought to be motivating you. This is the Sermon on the Mount, but you get to the end and you go, it might not work. Why? Because the guy that told you what to do, he does all of it. And you know what they did to him? Exactly what they might do to you. This is the great threat of Christianity. You see, you serve a Jesus who will indeed change the world. The kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of our God. How? Because he will ride his horse in a river in which the blood comes up to the bridle. Through our old eschatology, we read that to be the blood of all of his enemies. I think it might be his blood. Because when he comes on the horse, he's in a garment dripped, covered in red. When he got on the horse, he was as a lamb freshly slain. You know why his garment's dripped in red? Because he's been bleeding for 2,000 years for all the people that killed him. And for all the people that still try. So when you do the Sermon on the Mount by love, by living it out, you're not guaranteed to win. If you demand to win, you shouldn't follow Jesus. Demanding to win is not what we are part of the kingdom to do. But it is to live a life that reflects the love of our Father. And sometimes we only win by losing. We really only win. You see, I, Paul doesn't really expound too much. I, I'm stopping, I promise. But I, Paul doesn't really expound a ton on the Sermon on the Mount, but he has his moments. One kind of unheralded moment to me is in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's telling the Corinthian church that he's a little bit embarrassed of them because they've been suing each other in secular court. And he goes, why would you guys sit in front of a secular judge? You're going to judge angels and you're bringing cases against your brothers before unbelievers. He goes, why could you not have allowed yourselves to be wronged? And I always thought that was such a powerful verse that gets very little airplay in the church. Why is it that you can't allow yourself to be wronged? What is it about your character that won't let someone get you? What is it about you that will not allow someone else to win? Have you, have you dressed that up in hyper-competitiveness? Have you dressed it up in the way I was raised? What do you do with it when you get it to the cross where Jesus bleeds and dies and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What happens to that mask there? That's worth tossing two or three times in bed at night as you go to sleep and say, that's, Father, what I want to leave beneath the waters of baptism. It's come up in the newness of life. Let's leave that guy down there. The good news is every time Jesus says, but I say to you, it'll initially hit our ears rough, harshly. But once it gets into our heart, we'll realize that the ingredients of the kingdom just dropped in. And that if we trust it, you can stop talking about changing the world. You can start talking about changing yours. Because that's what happens when this gets in you.
I'm done trying to change the world. That's part of the reason why I'm completely satisfied being right here in this room on a Tuesday night, doing what we're doing digitally. Because I don't want to change the world. I took a look into the spiritual mirror of His grace and realized there was enough to change right here. And that the best way to do that was to keep going back to the well and drinking of the living water of Jesus and knowing that if I could put this in me, I could change, see some change here. And by default, the kingdom is like a seed that goes into the ground and grows into a great tree and its branches house the fowls of the earth. By default, if the tree grows in you, it'll provide some shade for some of the birds of the earth. You don't have to worry about it. You may not change the world through secular terms, through the earth, through the world's conditions, but you'll have changed yours enough that you'll begin to become a shelter for the people around you. Yeah. You'll be the person they want to turn to because they have found someone who doesn't respond the way, doesn't react the way that they've ever seen before. There's a lot. Every time we, I get into these for Tuesday, guys, it's overwhelming. You get to, into this and say, where do you stop? How do you end? I, we made it to the end of that chapter, and we didn't even do all the Beatitudes. So if it goes where I think it's going to go next week, we're going to dip back into the Beatitudes to go find some more. I kind of think doing it the way we did it, moving ahead, and then going back might give us a perspective on those Beatitudes that we didn't have the first time we hit a couple of them. So there's a few we didn't really dig into, and we're going to try that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We have enjoyed this tonight. We have had fun together. We have had fun in the word. We have had fun seeing Jesus, but we have been challenged. I know it. I know what it feels like to laugh in your presence and at the same time have you take a piece of who I am and show me what it looks like at the cross. And I thank you that tonight you're doing that in us so that we can walk in newness of life. We have heard it said, but you say to us, and in order for us to hear that, we have to do what you said to Revelation. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let that be us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.